Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is a replay episode of my chat with Sophie Walker from April 2020. Sophie is a feminist activist, author and founding leader of the Women's Equality Party. In this episode, we are chatting about Sophie's new book called Five Rules for Rebellion, which is an inspiring five-step journey to incorporating activism into our daily lives. It features stories of new and seasoned activists from Amica George to Jack Monroe. It's all about feeling less despair and more able to channel your anger and channel your want to change things and arm yourself with hope, practice perseverance and connect with others more compassionately. I found Sophie Walker so inspiring as I always do. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for coming on. We've got so much to talk about. Oh, I'm so (laughs) delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I don't know if you remember, but a while ago, we were on a panel together. I can't remember what it was for. I do remember it was a, a it was a sort of creative industry yeah. event. I think wasn't it something like that? And ages I, ago, ages ago, I don't remember much from it. But all I do remember is hearing you speak and feeling like I was reminded that I could be a bit angry. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. In the nice good way. Yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. felt really. I was like, oh my god, I really turn things down and I really soften what I'm trying to say and you mm. you just say it and yeah I loved it. Oh good I'm pleased and also quite relieved because I think I've always been quite impatient and I have often in the past been described as feisty which is a word I loathe. Yeah. We use it for women and animals I, I've, and I've often thought oh maybe I should you know try and be try and behave (laughs) but um no I don't I find it yeah I get itchy I get being told what to do and what space to take up makes me very claustrophobic and I consequently you know speak my mind and quite often get myself into all sorts of trouble well it's why you are brilliant at what you do and I wondered is that something that you've had from being a really young child like we was that something that people would notice about you even back then I think I've always been I've always being a bit of an outsider. I was never the popular kid at school. I was never, I never had big groups of friends. I grew up in Glasgow uh, in the 1970s and my uh, parents were both English and had moved there for my dad's job. And they, I think they felt, I think they felt sort of slightly outside of the group, if you like. And and I, and I was always sort of aware of occupying this funny ground of sort of being Scottish because I grew up there and also not because my family was English. So I was the sort of, what am I? Where do I fit? And then I was very, very, very tall from a very young age. So I was always, you know, uh, head and shoulders above everybody else had that sort of social deafness of not quite being able to pick up what was going, what was being said and was very geeky. So that whole, all that combined to, uh, and I was the first child as well. Um, So I also had that sort of I think my parents treated me like almost like a, a an adult because mm. you know they were still getting used to the idea of having kids, and um, I think all of that combined to make me feel, yeah, like somebody who was quite often on the outside looking in. And when you have that sort of perspective, I think it it does encourage you to to sort of poke and and sort of try and rub a, rub away to see what's what's really going on, mm. and maybe a layer of empathy for anyone who feels outside. Yeah, very much. I guess I, um, reading your full bio, I didn't know whether you were always in this sort of activist space, but you were a journalist for a long time first and then 
am I right in thinking it was with your daughter when she was diagnosed with autism? Yes. That you, it was almost like this sort of fire behind you of wanting to change things. Yeah, I was very much forced into it by by simple need. I would say my mum was quite an activist. She was a member of the women's liberation movement. We, I remember going on marches with her as a very little kid. Oh, wow. And doing, marching for CND and marching... Uh, for support for the miners. My mum was from a community in the northeast that was really, really hard hit. Uh, she also organised um, clinics to where you could get information about abortion access, which was really hard in Glasgow at the time. The nearest um, clinic to where you could get uh, abortion services was in Birmingham. Wow. Uh, so my mum used to sort of hand leaflets out. And, and also, uh, long, long before it got picked up to this scale it has now she was doing stuff on period poverty wow. she would stand outside the boots on the boots on the high street uh, on Byers Road in Glasgow and ask people to buy um, menstrual products for women who couldn't afford them and so the net result of all that was like I don't want to do any of that <laughs> I don't want to be an activist that's quite tiring so I became a journalist I did want to I did want to be involved in the world that was something that my mum very much gave me and my dad like the world is a huge place there's a lot going on we're not here for very long do something worthwhile be worthwhile don't drift um, and I became a journalist because I thought if I can report and tell stories of other people's lives then maybe we can all learn a bit more about each other and maybe that'll be a good thing. Yeah. But the actual push to activism, yeah, it came about because my daughter, it took us five years to get a diagnosis of autism after her school teachers first started saying, I think I think there might be something there. And the treatment we both received was absolutely appalling. Um, we were let down by pretty much everybody. We were let down by the schools. Mm. I remember at one point when she had been, um, my daughter had been really badly bullied, I mean, for a long, long time. And I used to have to quite regularly go and pick her up from school. And I remember one day the special educational needs coordinator saying, well, you know, she brings it on herself. Mm. Um, so that was the level of understanding there was in the school system for a girl with autism. We were let down by the local council. We were let down by the medical professionals. I mean, it just took forever for anybody to really sort of give us any support. Mm, um, at this point, I was, you know, having had a near 20 year career as a journalist, I was, I had to change all of that. I was, I took a desk job. I stopped traveling. I, um, I was a single parent by this point. I was, you know, trying to, I was worrying about paying the rent while working part time, while running from pillar to post to try to get you know, the various forms and assessments and all the rest of it that seemed endless, being turned down for disability living allowance, being turned down for an educational healthcare plan and just having to fight and fight and fight. And and it really, I really realised, I think the, the contempt with which actually our society and too many of our politicians uh, consider both of those who are different, in inverted commas, and the people who care for them. Mm. And it really motivated me to do something about it, not least because, the, you know, to, I needed to keep my daughter going, you know. I, she was coming home from school saying things like, Mummy, I wish I wasn't here. Mm. She was eight. And I thought, right, I do not want you to have to live in a world that makes so little space for you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do something about it. Wow. It's almost unthinkable to not be able to explain as well, like, this is how the world is and it's not fair mm. and it needs to change. Mm. I, I wondered, just on that quickly, with at the moment it feels like with like Greta Thunberg and and in like 
kind of public figures who are autistic? Is it like kind of in a way strange that it's now it's now becoming more widely known, but it's like, well, where was the help, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Uh, I mean, I think there's a couple of things there. I think there is no doubt at all that Greta has been an extraordinary inspiration for many people with autism, but particularly young girls who so often are misdiagnosed or undiagnosed or who, you know, experience double discrimination, not just as a person with a disability, but as a young woman or a girl with a disability when you're expected to behave in a certain way Mm -hmm. and who don't get access to support because we don't research we don't research female healthcare. There's very little understanding mm-hmm. or development, or, or sorry, understanding or research of what what autism looks like in women and girls. Mm-hmm. And even very, the very research little... into pregnancy and like what you can and can't eat and that sort of thing. It feels like that's really old school. Oh, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on <laughs> women's healthcare, <laughs> yeah. but but I think that you know, seeing the what is so often dismissed as sort of a, a sort of weird mania of autism, that single-mindedness being recast as sort of positive will that we see in Greta Thunberg is glorious. And and I know that my daughter, who's now 18, feels really lifted by that and and seen and understood. Uh, You know, it's made a huge, huge difference, I think, to her being able to see someone who who is in so many respects like her. Mm. And also really proudly kind of almost celebrating like I love being different. Yeah. I mean, that said, I think you don't have to look very far to see how hard it still is. Yes. You know, the yes. the the backlash from, you know, old white powerful men to this 17-year-old young woman has been extraordinary. And I think, you know, we're meeting today on a day that the government has just announced its budget for 2020. Not a word about childcare or social care. And so, you know, this unseen unvalued work of caring for vulnerable and different different you know people again goes un unrecognized and and it's the could, fabric of our very existence absolutely this social infrastructure that is so important so yeah i mean that's why i that's why i get out of bed every day i just you know i'm I feel very driven to to try to address this and come at it from as many different directions as possible. Yes. Well, this week and beyond, you are talking a lot about your book, which has just come out. And I really love how you frame the opening as well, because it's very much like I'm going to set the scene. The world is quite awful in many ways. There's a lot going on. Um, let's just get almost like, let's get that out of the way and um, <laughs> yeah. not pretend that's not happening. And then yeah. it's almost like a very comforting voice in a way saying, please don't give up and we need you. And one voice can make a difference. I wondered, it's called Five Rules of Rebellion. What made you, I know that you have, your brain is clearly like full of things. How did you get down to the five rules? <laughs> <laughs> well, I started with no rules at all. Um I'm so pleased that you found it comforting. I, I really, I really did. like. I'm feeling a little bit choked about that because that's really, really what I wanted to try to provide. I, I had got to the stage after ten years of campaigning in one way or another, either the work I was doing around disability and autism rights, or through the work that I was doing at the Women's Equality Party. So I'd done this for ten years, and I got to the point where I, I was feeling really outfaced. Uh, I think and. Yeah, where to start? I mean, <laughs> so the four years... Would I was, you call it like burnout? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, if I'm honest, that's that's pretty much what happened. I think 
I had um, my whole life shifted dramatically at the point at which I became a carer to a child with autism. My perspective changed dramatically. The work, the ways in which I worked and what I understood as work changed dramatically. My understanding of my community and my allies and the people who saw and understood changed dramatically. At the point at which I I joined the Women's Equality Party, I didn't do that because I wanted to be a politician. Far from it. I did it because I, it, I felt like this is what I need to do now if we are going to actually make change happen. And the four years, I mean, it was like being struck by lightning doing that job and being put in that position and, you know, having the privilege to have that voice and to be in that position. It was also an absolutely crazy time for politics. We had the EU referendum during which Joe Cox was murdered. We had the election of Donald Trump. Fake news became a thing. Racism and misogyny, like, that was suddenly a thing to celebrate and to, you know, uh, I mean, what? And then there were mass murder attacks in Manchester and Paris and Barcelona and Christchurch and all around the world. And we were having, we were at nearly 10 years of austerity and one in 50 people were using food banks and the gap between rich and poor was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the problems of the planet were enormous and and on top of all of that, I was there was a lot of abuse coming my way. I was getting a lot of social media abuse. I'm sure there's many people listening to this who've experienced that and know exactly how awful it is. It can make you feel, no matter how many people are in real life alongside you, it can make you feel very lonely and very isolated very quickly. You and, undermined a lot in interviews as well. I know that you say in the book where people were like, don't women have enough equality or something? Yeah, I mean, I was in a very, very gladiatorial position pretty much daily, having to go out and argue with misogynists. I don't know how <laughs> yeah. that would manifest in like your nervous system as well. Like, you know, that fight or flight kind of, no one should be in that position every day Yeah, in that gladiator ring. Yeah, and I really was. And I, you know, we used to joke, I used to joke about it with, you know, because I was surrounded by women who were helping me and supporting me and there were days when if I was doing two or three interviews, I would take two or three changes of clothes because the adrenaline and quite often the fear, I would just sweat through my clothes and then come off and have to get changed and go to the next one. You know, and then actually there was the stuff that really, really hurt my heart, which was the sort of the other women. That's the bit that hurts. The other women saying who would say you're not good for you're not a good enough feminist you're not good enough you'll never be good enough you are uh, you failed women you failed all women you you know you should be and so to saying this to you now and i and i hear it and i think god that's absurd it's just absurd how did that get to you but but it all really really did and i got to the point where i actually thought the only useful thing I can do is to get out of the way for people who are better at this than I am. That's where I'd got to. I mean, I was also really conscious that as a white middle class feminist, I needed to pass the mic. You know, our understanding of, I think there was a massive ripple of guilt went through the feminist movement when Trump was elected, mm -mm. Um, you know, by white women, yeah. that feminism had not done its job and had not been a place that would make space for all women and all perspectives of the female experience, if you like. So I really did also think, look, my being white and middle class is becoming a bit of a distraction. It's becoming quite easy to dismiss us all as a party of white middle class women because I'm I'm the face. Mm -hmm. So all of that 
came together and I thought I I just need to get out of the way and I um and, and be so an alley behind the scenes. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew that I needed to stop. I sort of basically lay on my sofa for several months with the curtains closed mm-hmm. and sort of drifted around the house, mm-hmm. drinking lots of cups of tea and leaving half cups of tea all around the house. And, but my brain was saying, how, how do you do this? How do we do it? How does this, how do you do it? How do you do it? There must be a way to, there must be, can we just, even though, you know, on some other mm-hmm. level, I was completely hollow, there was still this voice going, how the hell do you do this? And uh, so and my working title for this book was How to Be an Activist and Not Go Mad. I just started reading and thinking and picking up bits and pieces of books and philosophies. I started interviewing, uh, well, I started, that sounds very formal, but I started getting, I contacted some other women who were activists and campaigners in various parts of the world and sort of said, you know, can I, did this happen? And did you ever? And, you know, and and eventually I think my breakthrough moment was when I realised that actually activism is not, it's not a series of pitched battles. It's a philosophy for life. Mm. And when I realised that something went very quiet and still inside me and I sort of thought, oh, okay, this doesn't have to feel like I have to get up every day and hurl myself into, you know, this painful jousting thing. It's a philosophy. And then I started to sort of really map the stories against my own understandings and and that's how I ended up with the five rules because it became pretty clear that there was a there was a, a circle, if you like, which I think a lot of people were experiencing. And that's when I thought, okay, so maybe that is what underpins the philosophy then. And I know there's like, it's quite odd to have rules for rebellion, right? A rebellion by its nature sort of rips up the rules. But that that was essentially my thinking. Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. It's incredible that you kind of went away and had that period of time. And then we get to read this book, which is kind of the <laughs> product of that but it's so interesting that sort of um that duality of your voice matters you can literally change things you can we've seen it happen we've seen one person do change Mm. laws but they're mixed with the world is not on your shoulders just Mm. yours yeah because i think that's being weighed down by that is just not good for anyone no and also i mean while one person might start a conversation change only happens with a movement so the people who have managed to change laws or change mindsets or, you know, whatever kind of, they've done it because they've connected to other people and they've linked people together and they have fired people's imaginations and their hopes. And that's a really, really important part of it, which mm-hmm. is why I was really clear to write a chapter about collaboration, because I think connecting to other people is the hardest part of being an activist. It really, really is. It's never been harder, I think, to connect to other people. I think we live in in very divided communities. We live at a time when populist leaders are doing that classic divide and rule. They're protecting and entrenching their own power by encouraging us all to fear each other and be angry with each other and look for differences between us. I think social media really has become a very difficult place to have any sort of a conversation. Mm -hmm. I think we've been very slow to recognise that the very algorithms of social media are about defining us as individuals. We are encouraged to define, like really distill ourselves down into the absolute essence of all of our likes and dislikes in a way that really doesn't encourage 
discussion or or opening up. You know, they want us in our wee tiny little individual boxes so they could turn us into data and sell us or sell things to us. Uh, so that also makes it very hard to connect to people. And I think also because a lot of a lot of what we do as campaigners and activists it comes from personal vulnerability. It comes from personal experience mm -hmm. of things that have gone wrong or things that you have needed that have not been there or things that you have worried and and fretted for and yearned for and and the impact that that has had on you. And I think when you bring all that into the, an activist space to be met by somebody who just disagrees with you, it can feel like personal criticism. And it's really not. I mean, it's, you know, well, sometimes it is. <laughs> but, you know, it, you know, if you're dealing with people who are if you are trying to connect and you're and you're trying to connect in good faith, you have to make space for disagreement. Mm. Activism is not therapy. And I really like the bit in the book where you said activism is not a job title. Yes. Because I kind of stopped when I read that and I was like, I think for a lot of, I think I thought it was. And I would never call myself one necessarily, mm. but I'm trying to embrace that kind of, like you say, like day to day, like literally being nice to someone, a stranger on the tube it's like it's not activism but it's like just the smallest of things every single day can actually ladder up yeah but you're right it's not a job title it's far beyond that and it's like you say it's a philosophy it is and it's a and it's a philosophy in in practice as well i think i mean i I sometimes feel a bit cheesy referring to myself as an activist. I mean, I have to say, I don't sit around to talk about. But I, you, am an, I am an activist. You actually are. Um, <laughs> I think I think it's become quite a trendy word, and a lot of people are using it, and and I and that's great. Um, what I'm keen to do is to have a conversation about what we mean when mm. we use that word. It's like feminism. You know, there's been yeah. so much debate around who calls himself a feminist and who doesn't. I'm chief exec of Young Women's Trust now, which is the YWCA as was. And a, a recent piece of research that we did discovered that about 70, I think it's nearly 70% of young women now call themselves feminists. Yay! Brilliant! It's, which is completely brilliant. I'm really glad that that word that so many people tried to brand as toxic is now being seized upon by by young women as as something meaningful. But I do think, like anything else, I'm interested in, in what you do rather than what you call yourself. Totally. I really want to talk to you quickly about, as well, something that you talk about in the book, which I always find is, again, something that comes up on social media a lot, is uh, whataboutery, hmm. that word that is so good for summing up. Yeah. Exactly what it is. Um, so, for example, if you're, you know, campaigning for uh, something against period poverty in the UK, someone could reply going, well, what about X, Y and Z? Yes. I, thought, I found that really interesting in the book and also how you approached it. It did take me a while to figure out figure it out. And I think you do. It helps to be strategic. I've always been quite honest that you know, all of my social media presence is me. It is actually me. I don't have anybody else doing that. And I engage personally and I try to do it meaningfully. And, you know, I get it wrong sometimes. And I've, you know, said things that I shouldn't have when I've been tired or mm, fed up or irritable. <laughs> um, I do try to engage with people who want to engage in good faith. And I think that is really the key. I, I did spend far too long uh, wasting my precious time and my precious energy on people who were just there to wind me up. Mm. And I felt that I could tell they were trying to wind me up, but I also felt like, oh, I'll show you. I'll get one over on you. I'll just 
slay you with my perfect argument. And and it took me a while to figure out that my argument could be absolutely perfect and it didn't make any difference. Like they weren't really, you know, those people were not, are simply not interested in being persuaded or in, you know, applauding points or it's a total, total waste of time. I could be... I think Kat I, Moran once said it was like these people get like an internet boner. <laughs> from from just the reply yeah, from you like exactly. as in just being all they want is yeah. you the minute you reply they're like yes yes totally <laughs> and it took me far too long to figure that out but I also was also aware like the thing about social media is it might just be you and one other person talking but there's a lot of people watching so for a while I also thought look there's people watching maybe I can you know if there's people watching thinking oh god what, what do you say when someone asks you that then maybe I can help mm. with that yes but I think, you know, ultimately, if I say that I, uh, you know, I want to end violence against women and girls and somebody says, what about violence against men? You know, my answer is, so first of all, if it's if it's somebody with a, a, a Union Jack flag and... Um, <laughs> I knew uh, you were going to say flag. <laughs> and uh, and uh, no, no, not just that. There's, there's, you know, there's plenty of nice people with the Union Jack flag. But if generally I find a combination of... Uh, if they're following certain people who I'm not going to name and they've got uh, an anonymous avatar and, uh, you know, you know where I'm going with this, right? Yes, so you then, can tell. So yeah. then like, you, I just, you know, you just don't engage. Then I think there are other people who do who do want to. But generally, my thinking is, listen, if you are out every single day campaigning to end violence against men who do experience uh, violence, then great. Like, what can I do? How can we work together? If the only time you ever talk about violence against men is when I'm trying to talk about violence against women, no thanks. Yes. As I put it in the book, uh, the devil has enough advocates. Yes. Yes. I think Scarlett Curtis dressed up as a devil's advocate for Halloween. Oh, did she? <laughs> perfect. Oh, that's perfect. That was really clever. I have a couple more questions. Mm. Um, I know you, you include a lot of uh, voices in the book and different people who chatted to, interviewed. Um, mm. Are there any favourite, well, not favourite, but any bits where you thought, oh, that bit is going to you know really resonate? Gosh, there were so many. There's so much in there, um, so it's probably a hard question. I'm so touched also by the time that people gave me. I exchanged some really lovely emails with Isabel and Milati Widgson, who created this now global <laughs> campaign uh, called Bye Bye Plastic Bag to clean initially to clean up their beach in Bali when they were eleven and thirteen. And they were sent they they sent me some really, really charming emails about, well, you know, we didn't we didn't know what we were doing, we just started and It's um, a really good example of what you say about how making change can be something quite very local and yes. then it can grow. And then it really grows. Yeah, they've got all sorts of toolkits now on their website for their I mean that was amazing. I think also Shiori Ito, I just adore. I think she is a she's an extraordinary woman. She was the face of Japan's Me Too movement and she was the solitary single face. She was one woman who took on everyone, you know, who in a country that doesn't actually have the language to say, no, do not do this to me. I do not consent. I met her uh, in London when we were doing a panel around the time that Me Too kicked off and I was just so impressed by her. And then uh, met her again a few months later when she was back in London to, and we sat in a very quiet corner of the South Bank Centre actually and and she just told me her story and I I, I thought she was um, absolutely amazing. Uh, she's just won a civil case against 
her attacker and uh, and it's been years and years and years and years and I, I just think she's wonderful. I know it was a few years ago, but you talk about when you met Gloria Steinem as well. Oh. And I did enjoy that bit. <laughs> to make an absolute idiot of yourself in front of you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so brilliant. I wondered, you must have so many days where you feel very like full of inspiration. And even when you're interviewing people and just your job at the trust and things like that. But I just wondered for anyone listening who might be campaigning or doing something that is hard what do you do at the end of the day when you've had a bit of a when you've had a bit of a crappy day with it all? You know, when things, yeah. the news, everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think this. I have a sort of philosophical, philosophical thing that I try to do, and also a physical thing, and I have to do both really. So, I mean, one of the things I learned very early on in this fight, I have been diagnosed with depression in the past, and it's something that I have to manage. And I've managed it for about 10 years to varying levels of success. And that was that I need to do physical exercise and I need to do quite a lot of it. It's just a necessity. And so I run as often as I can. I don't run the vast distances that I used to, mainly because my knees are gone and my back has gone. And my, you know, people have asked me in, 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 very, in an interview, somebody asked me in an interview recently, what would your superpower be? And I just I'd love to run, just run and run and run. They looked at me like I was mad. Like you know what, you don't want to be invisible. I would love to be able to run as long and as far as I used to be able to run. Do so, you find that it's the running in the moment of running, or is it the high, not the high, but like the endorphins after the run, or is it both? It's all of it. It's absolutely all of it. I go early, so I I go alone and I watch the dawn and I hear the birds and I listen to my heart and I connect to my body as a strong living, glorious thing. And I feel connected in all sorts of different ways back to myself and to the, to the world around me. And it, it makes a vast difference. And then I think, you know, there is also at the end of the day, if, if you're tired and you're feeling a bit overwhelmed, the, there is the philosophy, I'm not the only person in this fight. You know, there's lots and lots and lots, lots of us. And, you know, the point at which I'm I'm a bit knackered, there'll be somebody else who's absolutely killing it. And that's fine. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. That's genuinely yeah, perfectly put. And makes me want to do more running, to be honest, because I, I know I know that it's good and it's uh, something that I need to get better at. My last question is a bit of a rogue one, but I wanted to ask you, your book is dedicated to a group of women. Oh, yes. I just, am I allowed to ask who they are? Are they your best friends or? Um, yeah, they are. Um, I think when you find yourself in crisis, you find out who your, who your friends are. And Vanessa and Tanya and Emma and Jodie and Sam and Karen, I just adore all of you if you're listening to this. And thank you for picking me up and dusting me off and sending me flowers and walking me round and round the block. <laughs> and just, yeah, the sisterhood. They're amazing. Mm. I had a feeling the, the answer would be as lovely as that. I knew when I read the dedication, I was like, that's a group of people that... I'm sure yeah. I've just been amazing. Thank you so much for that. I really enjoyed that. Oh, and, thank you. Um, if you want to hear more from Sophie's big, brilliant brain, all the things that she knows and all the things that you've had shared so brilliantly in the book, then go and buy it now. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it helps. It's really brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. 